Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 1, and the subheading is divorce. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Little children and Jesus. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms. He put his hands on them and he blessed them. The rich young man. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. But the disciples were amazed at his words. Sorry, the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We've left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, and with them persecutions. 
in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and last will be first. Jesus again predicts his death. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. And he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. The request of James and John. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. And they replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. Thanks, Craig. Well, my name's David. If I haven't met you before, I'm an apprentice at Trinity Northeast. It's great to be here today and to work through this passage. Um... It's a loaded passage, isn't it? Um, I hope you've marked out the rest of the day because we're going to be here for a long time to nut through it. No, not really. It shouldn't. It'll be probably about 25 minutes. But um, how about I pray before we get started? Dear Father, um, we thank you so much that we can come here today gathered around your word, gathered as your people. Please help us to hear what you have to say, and please help us to be responding. Amen. I want to start today by sharing a story about a man named Nick, a hardened thug whose life was dedicated to organised crime in South Australia. In some ways, you couldn't blame him. Growing up, his dad was a tyrant who ruled his house with an iron fist. Nick would witness his mum being dragged up and down the halls, and if he slipped up, his dad would make sure he knew about it. He eventually got out of this home, but it seemed his fate was set. Here's what he had to say about the matter. I thought I was born to be a criminal. I thought I'd die a criminal. That's my destiny. But one night, when Nick had a contract out for someone's life, something happened to him, and this caused a dramatic transformation. He went from a life of crime to being devoted and caring for some of the most needy people. And later on, I'll tell you what caused this transformation. Well, 
Today, Jesus is on his last leg of his journey before Jerusalem. And so he's seeking a radical transformation in his disciples. These are the guys who throughout this travel, Jesus has been showing them God's desire for their lives. And today, we'll see him do this in relation to marriage and also money. But in showing God's heart for these matters, he'll also reveal something about their own hearts and the implications this has for things like even entering and participating in God's kingdom. These are the things we get to wrestle with today. And it brings us to our first point. It's impossible for hard-hearted humans to live for God. And here we'll see Jesus challenging us about divorce. At the beginning of our passage, Jesus and a large group of followers enter a Judean region on the other side of the Jordan. It's here Jesus is met by some Pharisees who ask him this question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Why are they asking about divorce? Well, back in chapter 6, you may remember Herod both arresting and beheading John the Baptist. Why? Because he told him it was wrong to marry his brother's wife. Well, Jesus here is in the same area. So potentially these Pharisees, they're trying to get him in the deep end uh, to see the same fate as John. It's also a loaded question, though, because at the time, there were two schools of thought on what was acceptable for divorce. One group of Jews, they thought it was okay only if the wife, uh, if she was unfaithful. But the other group, uh, they thought that there had to be, um, if, if there was anything that displeased the husband, then that was enough to divorce the wife. So potentially as well here, they're trying to divide Jesus' crowd with this question. But despite this, Jesus isn't backing down from the challenge. So he replies, what did Moses command you? They respond, Moses permitted a man to write a divorce, uh, write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And here, Jesus gives his answer to their question. He says, at the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his wife, uh, father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they'll no longer be two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God's joined together, let no one separate. Well, in hearing this, Jesus' disciples were shell-shocked. Like the Pharisees, they knew the Old Testament and how Moses made allowances for divorce. So we hear in verse 10, when they were in the house again, Jesus asked, or they asked Jesus about this, but he doesn't change his answer. He goes one step further. He says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. What Jesus is doing here is he's taking his disciples from a worldly view of marriage with its rules and regulations and is lifting their vision to God's heart for marriage. That in marriage, God lovingly joins two people together and if this bond's broken, it breaks his heart. I know for some of us here today, we've already been through divorce and for others, you might be considering it. In a society where it's commonplace, it could be tempting for us to downplay Jesus' words. He's just being extreme to make a point. 
Or we could also try and find a loophole in what he's saying. But Jesus here is making a radical, trans, uh, he's making a radical challenge to his followers to not be like the world around them when it comes to marriage, but to honour and uphold marriage. I've only been married for three years, so in a sense, what do I know about marriage? Um, but I've heard from some older, wiser Christians uh, that marriage is great, but there are hard times. In those moments, how are we looking to invest in our marriage? And for those who have friends going through these hard times, how are we supporting and encouraging them to honour their marriage? Now, just to take a sidestep from the passage for a moment, uh, this isn't the only uh, word on marriage in the Bible. People can sometimes find themselves in terrible situations. Uh, domestic abuse is an obvious and real example of this. If this is you, please don't feel like you have no options. At our church, there's always someone you can talk to. You can speak to Stephen George, our senior minister, or Scott Westwood, our associate minister, and you're always welcome to talk to me too. All right, well, coming back to the passage, Jesus is raising his disciples' sights to God's heart for marriage. But in doing so, he's also revealing their own heart. Did you pick up the reason for divorce in verse 5? It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Jesus is saying the only reason for divorce is because human hearts are hard. That divorce, it's simply a regrettable concession to our own sin. If you talk to anyone who's been through a divorce, it's never what they set out to do. So how did they end up there? Well, in their own words, they'll no doubt tell you it's because of the hard heart of one or even both of the people. But this idea of hard hearts, it's not specific to marriage. Uh, There's so many examples in the Bible of this. For instance, in the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites, they wander through the desert for 40 years rather than go into the promised land. Why? Because they failed to be formed by God and his plans. My wife and I, we're expecting our first child soon. And so I thought, in addition to that sloth, today would be a great chance to... um, work some of my crafts just in preparation uh, for Little Harrington. One idea I had was that I could potentially make some shapes with Little Harrington. I don't know, I'm new to this, so uh, be kind. But, you know, I thought that could be fun. Triangles, circles, could be really good. Um, so I got a couple of materials. You, you give me some feedback about what's going to be best to make these shapes. So I've got the first option here. Play-Doh, I think that's a pretty good option, Right. It's soft, it's malleable, you can make a circle or a triangle, I don't know, you can make lots of things with it really. I think this could be a good option for making shapes, right? What about this? What's little Harrington going to do with this? (laughs) Damage, yes, just like their dad. (laughs) It's, It's rough, it's hard. Doesn't seem to be much we could do with this. We couldn't form shapes with this. Well, Jesus is showing us that human hearts, they can be like this rock. And this is serious because it extends beyond foul marriages. 
Because with a heart like this, how could we ever enter God's kingdom? How could we ever participate in his kingdom? Jesus has taken our worldly view of marriage and raised us to his heart for marriage. But in doing so, he's exposed the human heart, the very thing that stops us from living for God. And it's with this tension we get to our second point. In God, in Jesus, God makes it possible for us to enter and live for his kingdom. And here we see that Jesus is also challenging his disciples about money. This all makes sense. So from verse 17, we read, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. This is a surprising response, isn't it? Here's a bloke who seems desperate to enter the kingdom, who throws himself at Jesus' feet, and Jesus says, no one's good, only God. Bit of a slap in the face, it feels like. We'll come back to this later on. Jesus continues, You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and the list goes on. And the teacher says, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack. Go, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Notice Jesus deals with this man very differently differently to the Pharisees. He recognizes his earnest when he's coming to Jesus. And so he looks at him and loves him. So when he's giving his answer to the question, he's not doing to make things harder. He's lovingly giving this man what he needs to hear. And so he tells him, Sell everything you have and follow me. But tragically, this teacher walks away sad. His love of money has trumped his desire for God's kingdom. In our first encounter, we heard about hard hearts and how it makes us resistant to God's will. Well, here we see a sold-out heart and how it stops him from following Jesus. And then in verse 23, Jesus turns to his disciples and once again gives them an insight into God's heart. He says, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed. From the perspective of the disciples, they've seen this rich man come wanting to be in the kingdom and they probably think, he's perfect, he's just what we need, the best recruit we could get. For starters, he's rich and in the Jewish society that generally meant that he was blessed by God. He also seems to be a great bloke, doesn't he? You saw the list of what he's done. And yet, Jesus says, you can't come unless you sell everything. And because of this, he's unable to enter the kingdom. Seems a bit rough, but Jesus here is making another radical challenge to his disciples. If they follow him, they need to be lovers of God not lovers of, mar- uh, of money. Are we in danger at t of selling out our hearts to money? 
It's worth taking a moment to consider this. What's the interaction between our desires and money? In our free time, do we dream about making money? Or do we worry about money, even though we've got more than enough? Maybe a good indicator of our heart could be looking at our financial habits. What's happening with our money? Are we bogged down in debt because we're invested too heavily in this world? With what we do have, and I know it's different for everybody here today, with what we do have, are we considering how to use this for God's plan? The local church, missionaries, caring for the needy. You might be a youth here today and think, doesn't apply to me, right? I've got no money. I think that's fair enough in one sense. That's probably what I thought when I was younger. But two things I'd say to younger David Harrington. The first is, don't be fooled. Often it's the young people who have the most expendable money. Why? Because parents cover all the bills. So anything that you make, you spend, usually on video games and other fun things. The second thing is, if you don't have much money, start early. With what you do have, consider how you might be using it for God's plans. Are these habits we form now, they're going to carry, carry us through our lifetime. Well, coming back to the story, the disciples are amazed at Jesus' lesson on money. But Jesus isn't done here. And so in verse 24, he says, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Remember the sloth? I was going to name it Stephen the Sloth. I thought that could be a good name. He's pretty cheeky. Well, we could give this another go, couldn't we? We could try getting it through the needle. There's some bigger, stronger people here. But why bother, right? It's useless. It's not going to work. It's impossible. Why is Jesus being so extreme with this point? Why does he hate rich people? It doesn't seem fair. By asking this question, we start to understand the genius in Jesus' approach with this rich leader, teacher. What's the very first thing he said? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. From the beginning, Jesus wants this rich man to understand both who he is and who God is and to recognize that in himself, in his hard and sold-out heart, there's nothing he can do to enter God's kingdom. And we see this, don't we, in the world around us, sometimes even in ourselves, and so we land at the same question as the disciples. Who then can be saved? And Jesus tells us, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. When the teacher asked Jesus how to enter God's kingdom, why did he lock in on the money so hard? Well, on the one hand, he wanted to teach the importance of being devoted to God and not to money. But also, it was this man's love of money that stopped him from following Jesus, God's only solution to qualify people for his kingdom. A few verses on, Jesus explains a bit more why he's so important. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in verse 33, he gives us an insight into the nature of this sacrifice. We're going up to Jerusalem, 
And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him, and he'll be handed over to the Gentiles, who'll mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he'll rise again. Can you imagine Jesus, the Son of God, who came to rescue us, willingly going to Jerusalem to be mocked, spat on, flogged, and killed? Why, why would he go to such lengths? What strikes me about this scene is just before Jesus tells us that in God, all things are possible. And yet here, we see such a painful death, which can only lead us to one conclusion. It was necessary. On that cross, Jesus takes the punishment we deserve for our hard and rebellious hearts. And in doing so, he makes it possible for his followers to enter the kingdom of God. But there's still one problem. Our rock hearts. Even if we entered God's kingdom and gave him our heart, what would he do with it? What would he do with it? Can he shape it? Can he make a circle or a triangle out of it? He can't do anything with it. Although not explicit here, another wonder of the cross is that Jesus not only um, Jesus' mercy not only brings us into the kingdom, it transforms our hearts. When our sights are raised to Jesus' mercy on that cross, we realize how much we need him to qualify us for the kingdom and to enable us to live for him. And this brings us to our last point for the day. Follow Jesus and allow your world to be transformed by him. And here you see Jesus, he's not just challenging us on money or marriage, he's challenging us on everything. All right, we've jumped through the passage now, and Jesus has just arrived in Jericho and is about to leave when we see an individual's response, which can only give us hope. We pick up the story in verse 46. As Jesus and his disciples... Uh, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. By worldly standards, Bartimaeus is such an unimpressive character, isn't he? A blind beggar on the side of the road. He's a stark contrast to the rich teacher. But Bartimaeus gets it. Although blind, he sees Jesus for who he really is. And so he responds in two ways. And I think we can learn a lot from him. We see the first response in verse 46. Bartimaeus pleads with Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on him. People tell him, Shut up. Who does this blind beggar think he is? But Bartimaeus doesn't care. He's desperate. And so he shouts all the louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. As Jesus calls him, Bartimaeus throws his cloak aside, jumps to his feet and comes to him. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Here is a man who recognizes his need for mercy. And so he throws himself on Jesus. That's his first response. We see the second response in verse 52. Go, said Jesus, your faith healed you. Immediately he received his sight and... He followed Jesus on the road. 
Jesus has given this man his sight and told him to be free. And what does he do with that freedom? He follows Jesus. Jesus, who's right on the edge of Jerusalem, and here is someone who both recognizes him and chooses to follow him. In a sense here, we're given a taste of Jesus' transformative power, which we see so clearly on the cross. Now, just like us, Bartimaeus doesn't have it all figured out. And as he follows Jesus on that road to Jerusalem, his thoughts and values are going to be profoundly challenged. Like us, he'll have to wrestle with many issues. How to honour and uphold marriage. How to protect our hearts from being sold out to this world. Things like money. But like us, as he turns to Jesus and his mercy, his heart will be shaped to be more like God's. Well, going back to that opening story with Nick, what caused the radical transformation in his life? can only be one thing, right? One night, at a time when Nick had a contract out for a man's life, a friend and fellow criminal paid him a visit at his home. When Nick saw him, he was a bit puzzled, though. Just 10 days earlier, this same guy was on a downward drug spiral, and yet here, he had a smile on his face. At the time, Nick thought that he might have found a new drug. But this friend sat down with Nick and he told him about Jesus. How Jesus had come into his life, how he died for his sins and risen again. And then he turned his attention on Nick. He told him that he needed to trust in Jesus' mercy and live for him. Nick was shaken by this. He describes hearing these words like a sword being plunged into his heart. He knew there was truth in what was being said. Now, he didn't convert on the spot, but that night he cancelled the contract on the man's life. And slowly, God lifted Nick's sight to what Jesus had done for him on the cross. And eventually, Nick gave his heart to God. From there, he went from a life of crime to living for God as he cared for vulnerable people and telling them about the great news of Jesus. Now, often the transformation in our own lives, it doesn't feel this dramatic, does it? But as we follow Jesus, his mercy is changing us from the inside out. In this week ahead, let's continue to fix our sights on Jesus and his radical ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you do all things well. We're sorry for the ways our hearts can be hard to your word, sold out to this world. Today, we're reminded that in you, all things are possible. Please help us to be like Bartimaeus, throwing ourselves on Jesus' mercy and following you. We thank you that it's through your mercy that you're shaping our hearts for your purposes. Please help us to honour and value marriage the way you do, to ensure our hearts don't sell out for anything in this world, including money. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.